Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. It's an honor and delight to be here with my teacher, Rabbi Yitzchak Katz, who is the chair of the Talmud Department at Yeshivat Chovavei Torah. He received smicha in 1986 from Rav Yechezkel Roth, Dayan of UTA Satmer. Rav Katz studied in Brisk and Yeshiva's base Yosef, Navardic for over 10 years, a graduate of the Hashar program of Jewish educators. Rav Katz has taught at the Mayanot Yeshiva High School for girls and SAR High School, in addition to serving as a shul rabbi at the Prospect Heights Shul in Brooklyn, New York. He was a leading teacher of a Daf Yomi class in Borough Park for over eight years. And on a personal note, Rav Yisoska Katz has been a, a personal Rebbe to me, a deeply formative uh, educator in my yeshiva experience. And it's a, del- it's a delight to be here to, with you to talk. Thank you very much for having me. for the opportunity. Thank you so much. So to jump right in, um, does the Torah have anything uniquely positive to add to the broader discourse of LGBTQ rights? Right, so it's an interesting question. Um, you know, my answer is twofold. In some ways, yes, in some ways, absolutely no. In the sense that, uh, and I'll start with a no, actually, because I think one of the, the, the big mistakes in the Orthodox community, at least, is that um, we are dealing with uh, people who um, are gay and it matters because, I mean, my prism, my point of, of reference is halakha. And that's how I kind of, you know, go about the world and deciding how I relate to people, I interact with people. And um, in halacha, there's a notion of a cheskas kashrus. People have a cheskas kashrus. So I have jokingly say that I've never in my life met a gay person. What I mean, I've never in my life met a gay person who somehow is life summarized in any way, uh, shape or matter incompatible with halacha. I mean, the fact that a person identifies as LGBTQ or queer means nothing to me from that perspective. So, okay, that's how they identify. It shouldn't matter. I mean, they should uh, be just like anybody else. I mean, they should uh, be able to get an aliyah. They should be able to adopt for the almond. They should be able to uh, be, uh, you know, an adult or so forth and so forth. And as a matter of fact, that's the case um, in my, uh, was the case in my shul, uh, which I just left a couple of months ago. Um, there was a significant, my shul was in Brooklyn, as you know, and um, there is a large um, LGBTQ segment in Brooklyn. And um, there was a significant segment of LGBTQ, uh, people identified as LGBTQ in my shul. And there was never ever an issue about whether they can be full participants in the fullest sense of the way. I mean, uh, whether the question was davening for the Amman and Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, davening, I'm um, having a layout. It was just, it didn't matter. It was kind of, in that way, I feel like the Torah says nothing because there is nothing. There's nothing to talk about. Um, on the other hand, I mean, the reality is the reality, and there is a tragic reality that uh, we live in a community, in a world that still is incredibly homophobic and incredibly, uh, you know, discriminatory. And the Torah is all about um, 
Torah Chaim Vahavat Chesed. The Torah is all about being here and making this world a better and kinder place. Um, and that's what it's about. So the Torah is very much in that way um, a uh, resource, a point of reference for how to go about helping make this world um, as inclusive and as welcoming and as loving as possible. Very powerful. So what do you see as the biggest hurdles to LGBTQ acceptance within orthodoxy? And do you think ultimately we'll be able to overcome those obstacles? So again, I mean, I, I, all I can do is um, refer back to my own experience because um, just to clear the record, I left my shul uh, in a rare case where I left for good reasons uh, because Rabbanus, when it works, works wonderfully. And I had a great experience in my shul. Really loved being a rabbi. Just kind of the uh, little side issues that didn't work out and I uh, decided to pursue other things for the moment. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote about this a while ago um, that it wasn't that long ago when um, someone said, to you, um, gay and orthodox, and you would say, how very funny, why would you, there's no such a thing. And the truth is there was no such a thing until uh, not that long ago because orthodoxy had absolutely no room for people who identify as, as queer. And um, I really am, you know, thanking the Rabbani Shalom daily for the fact that that is no longer the case that one can come and say, you know, I identify as gay and orthodox and say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's just a testament to the fact that um, there is a significant segment within the uh, queer community who once upon a time was not willing to fight the fight uh, that it takes to kind of create the space for the queer community who now are willing to kind of take up that battle. And there's also people who are willing to respond in kind. And um, Again, coming back to what I said to you in the last question, um, my point of reference is Alacha. That's where I meet the Rabbani Shalalam. That's where I meet uh, Kichiburichi. That's where I find spiritual sustenance. And what an incredible bracha that the gay community now is part of the Alacha discourse. Um, I mean, in my own experience, and as someone who's dealt with a significant number of um, LGBTQ-related questions, they have shown light, the light on areas of halacha that we never have thought before, simply because these are not the kind of questions that we were thinking about. Now, the obvious area is that they have forced us to revisit first principles about sexuality and intimacy and relationships and all that. That's bashut. What's not so obvious to people and what's so, so, not so exciting for me is that even on, so to speak, second tier halachot that are not directly related to the queer identity, all of a sudden have come to the fore through a new lens. I mean, the example that I love to share always, it's so beautiful, is that um, I had a, uh, I have, I mean, I had, I'm not there anymore, but I had a lesbian couple in my shul, really a beautiful, beautiful couple, you know, halavai that, all of my shuls should have the Yerachamayim that they had. And um, are you ready for this? Um, before Pesach, they came to me and asked me what to do about kidney up. Uh, one of them is Faridis, one of them is Ashkenazit, and they wanted to know what to do about kidney up. All of a sudden, it's not a question of intimacy and relationships, it's a question about kidney up, but through a different angle they've I've never thought of before, they've never looked at. And 
uh, I didn't have a chance to publish the Chuva, but I did end up writing up a Chuva once again, looking to first principles. What is the notion of Minhag? And what happens when two people share a life? Uh, how do they determine Minhag? And just briefly, I mean, I don't want to get into the conversation of Hilchot Minhag. It turns out that, you know, we all know that there's an, there's an idea that when there's a married couple, uh, they usually should kind of go after one Minhag, the husband's Minhag. Because of my um, inquiry on this question about the lesbian couple, it turns out that that's actually not true. There is no halakha that a married couple has to follow the husband's minhag. All there is is that when people live together, there needs to be a unified practice. Minhag achid is the language that the Tashbits uses. And in traditional families, if you have to pick one person's practice, then of course you'll pick the practice of the husband. But it has nothing to do with gender at all. All it has to do with is two people shouldn't share a home where they each do different things. And so essentially what I told that couple is, you have two options to choose, so to speak. Pick whatever it is you want your home to be, and that's going to be what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. Kidney out, other issues. Um, and it's just was an opportunity to learn so much Torah that I really, you know, call like queer Torah. I would have never have thought about it. I mean, quickly, just one other example is the Pidyon Abed question. There's a queer couple, a queer lesbian couple, and one of them is, um, is expecting a child. And when that child would be born, the question would then be, who does Pidyon Abed? Is it neither of them? Is it both of them? Is it based in? So, so, so the halachic discourse has grown tremendously. Our understanding of intimacy has grown tremendously. It's like, like I said, I'm going to come full circle to what I said in the beginning. Uh, that we are privileged to live in a kufa where that no longer is a joke. Yeah, it's awesome. You know, for those of us out in the field, you've been an inspiring model of someone who, who really uh, is taking these questions on uh, head on, uh, both with Yerush Mayim and with deep rachami, with deep love and compassion for, for people. Created the Salman Lokim. So, um, to look at the, our most emerging, uh, most emerging frontier of gay marriage, um, what are some halachic vehicles that might enable and enhance uh, same-sex marriage? Right, right, right. So, I mean, again, my point of reference is Orthodox. I am uh, identify as Orthodox. It's part of um, the way I uh, go about in this world, um, and I'm bound by halacha, and halacha is really. Uh, the final arbiter for me in terms of deciding uh, what's 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 allowed, what's not allowed. So, to be honest, from a, a halachic or from an orthodox halachic perspective, if we talk about you know a same-sex marriage in the way marriage traditionally works within an orthodox context, obviously that's between a husband and a wife. Um, that's what the Torah describes. That's what the Torah proscribes, and that's all there is. So, if the question is is it possible for a same-sex couple to get married in the classic fashion of Kiddushin Kedas Moshe of Yisrael? The answer is no, of course not. Um, that's discussing a man and a woman. But if we, ans- if we ask another question, if we ask another question, and I want to preface this by something uh, quite fascinating, which is uh, another Shmuli, not you, uh, but I'm not a big fan of Shmuli Betreach, to put it mildly. Um, I don't think there is um, anything that he's written or said that I can fully embrace or proudly identify with. But but the one time he wrote something that I really, really, really connected to what he wrote was after the Supreme Court's decision about same-sex marriage. 
And when there was this huge conservative uproar in the general population and within the, the Jewish community, and he said, how beautiful is this? This is the only segment of American society that actually is clamoring to be married and to have the formality and the stability of what married life provides. And I think there's something so beautiful that um, queer Orthodox couples are coming to us to try to find ways for them to be married and to do what marriage does. Marriage does one thing. Marriage imparts kedusha on a relationship. Two people have decided to share the most intimate of their lives together, and the Torah has provided a mechanism that imposes sanctity. And sanctity is a double-edged sword. I mean, sanctity has a kum va'aseh and a, uh, a surmara. And I'm sorry, a surmara and asay tov. And that's what Kedusha is. Kedusha has limitations. This is a sacred relationship. There are boundaries. There are rules. And it's also, it is holy. There's a Shekinah there. There's Kedusha there. And I think that we owe this to people within the um, queer Orthodox community who are coming to us for guidance on how to help make their relationship sacred to do the best we can to try to find ways how to do it. Now, again, this is not going to involve in any way negating halakha. But I do believe it is possible to do without negating halakha. Obviously, this is not a shiur that I'm having with you. You're not having that kind of conversation, but I'm happy to have that conversation with anybody who is interested. But there are ways within the context of halakha where the couple is committed to live life according to halakha, where they are entitled to have the imprimatur of holiness um, for their, on their lives. And the question is then going to be, what would such a ceremony look like? Um, what would that entail? And what would that involve? I mean, for the moment, I don't think that I'm there. I don't think I'm at a place where I know what a, 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 a same-sex relationship, um, sanctioned relationship would look like. Um, but I definitely think it's something that's worth to explore and worth looking into. Um, again, I mean, coming back to what I said before, how inspired I am by... Um, members of the queer community identify as Orthodox. Um, a couple of summers ago, my wife and I were in Australia and we were privileged to met, meet this wonderful, wonderful gay couple. We got to know them, very male, two gay men were married, uh, living together and married. And we became very close friends and they've really been a source of such inspiration to my wife and I, to our kids. We really got to know them very well. And... Um, you know, unfortunately, just as is in the straight community, sometimes relationships fall apart. And sometimes relationships uh, don't work out and their relationship did not work out. And they came to me with help to figuring out how to kind of do a separation in a way that honors whatever it is that they've established. And it was, again, a beautiful, beautiful opportunity to think of what can the Torah and Halakha give us to help infuse their journey with the utmost sanctity, with the utmost significance. And I really don't see why that's um, not something that we should all pursue. Um, you know, it's not like uh, the exclusion would make any difference in terms of the way people live their lives. People are who they are, uh, and they are not going to uh, change, nor are they coming to us for being changed. They're coming to us for a little help a little support, 
uh, and holding their hands as they're going about this very difficult journey called life. Right. And we need to do it to them. Yeah, there, and um, as you said so beautifully, there's, there's the pastoral commitment, just the human dimension and the ethical dimension. There's creative ritual that can be created. Um, and Baruch Hashem, we've inherited amazing halacha and rituals um, that can be uh, employed. And, and like you said, there, there's also limits. Perhaps. But, Perhaps. Yeah. Again, I just, like I said, I'm going to be very careful. I mean, like, for the, I'm not at a place that where I know what it looks like and what it's supposed to look like and what it means, but I'm definitely at a place where I'm willing to have that conversation because, yeah. again, this is amazing uh, that there are people out there who are coming to us and say, help us create a commitment right. that is dedicated, that is um, responsible, and that is holy. So, right. Because on the, on the secular front, the, there's an economic justice issue that those who are married um, have opportunities and rights that, that, that aren't. But on the religious level, I think that's exactly right. And I right. think we make a mistake, and I wonder if you agree, to define a marriage solely or primarily by sexual acts. It seems to me that sexual actions um, are indeed, um, uh, and, and intimacy is indeed an important part of a marriage, of a committed relationship, but it is not the defining factor. Um, in most relationships, I would suspect less than 1% of the time together, the rest is co-managing a family and home building and, and, and the like. And I think so too, we should not allow it to be a barrier. Uh, you know, uh, intimacy should not be a barrier towards home building. I wonder if you agree with that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I agree with the importance of exploring this question. Like I said before, the beauty about uh, this time in our, in our history of Allah is the fact that we are asking first principle questions. Yeah. We are asking precisely the question that you're asking, which is when someone within a halachi context talks about marriage, what are, the, what are the variables they're considering? What are the variables that they're talking about? And I want to just add one more point to what you said, which is the word intim intimacy is a very big word. It incorporates a lot of different kinds of intimacies, a lot of different kinds of um, closenesses. And, you know, let's be honest. The Torah, at least from an Orthodox perspective, does talk about certain intimacies, but it only talks about those intimacies. It doesn't talk about other possibilities that definitely bear being looked at. Right. Great, great. So looking at a sociological, psychological dimensions here, where is opposition to gay rights in orthodoxy just fidelity to a traditional understanding of Torah? It's mamish, it's Yerushamayim, it's being, being macabre, like our halakhic responsibility. And when is it just homophobic? And sort of what are the boundaries there of those who are committed to halakha and there should be respect, and those who simply have fear and hate that overflows and hurts people? Right, right, right. So... So as, as, as you have alluded to, alluded to um, in a word or two, but you know uh, my background, I did grow up in the Haredi community. And, uh, you know, I have a strong affinity to the Haredi community. I really had a great experience that I didn't leave because of anger or resentment. And I do feel that one of the mistakes that we in the liberal Orthodox community make is not sufficiently appreciating where their suspicions, where their fears come from. Um, you know, we might have made 
a lot of the done a lot of the work it takes to get to a place where we can reconcile or hold down to these kind of competing values of compete of commitment to Torah and halacha, commitment to mitzvahs, and yet also be you know a ally to the queer community. Uh, but I think we're making a mistake by not appreciating that was a process. Uh, I can't speak for anybody but myself. I didn't wake up one morning and say, "Sure, those two work together." They didn't. Uh, and thank God I had the books, the, 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 the friends and the support um, system that enabled me to get to a place to realize I can be as orthodox as I always was, which I still am, and at the same time also be an ally to the queer community to create an orthodoxy that is optimally welcome within the halachic um, framework uh, for the queer community. But we need to approach this with a sensitivity. We need to talk to the uh, people to our right who are not there with the respect and the dignity that they deserve because, you know, we never know. I mean, are there elements of homophobia in that mix? Yes, of course, there are elements of homophobia in that mix, uh, but it's not just that. And instead of, you know, um, you know, the Shammai mode of beating, clobbering them with, you know, this is immoral, this is unethical, I think the hell the mode would resonate much more deeper with uh, a lot of people. So that's one thing I'm going to say. The other thing that I feel is um, missing in our discourse about LGBTQ is that I believe that there are two types of homophobia. There is blatant homophobia and there is latent homophobia. And blatant homophobia, we know we've encountered that and that's outrageous and that needs to be, you know, shut down the minute we encounter that. But there's also a latent homophobia, which is one that is homophobic still, but doesn't come from a malicious place. It comes from a place of, you know, suspicion of... It's different. It's not what you're used to. I mean, I'll use a poor analogy, but an analogy nevertheless. Years ago, when there was a debate about women wearing tefillin, um, my resistance to the instinctual, emotional was much stronger than to the halachic. I'm a man who is used to very, you know, manly and masculine images. It took me a while to get used to the fact that it's not a steer it to kind of the way I imagine the world to be to see a woman wearing tefillin. And I think there's an element of that going on within the Orthodox discourse where it just feels strange. It feels different than what we used in terms of seeing the role of genders play in the way people interact. And once again, I'm going to come back to what I said before. Um, there might need to be an element of small docha, but uh, in my own experience, I found that Yemin Makarevet uh, goes much further and accomplishes much more than a small docha uh, approach. Fascinating. Okay, so my, my, my last question for you, to, for you today, of course, there's so much more to say, but we can't do it all today. Yeah, <laughs> if we zoom out, what's, what, um, what's at stake in all this? What's at stake in all this? Um, you know, I'm generally not a uh, radical person, <laughs> but I'll be a little bit radical. I think what's at stake of this is the future of modern Orthodox um, um, observance, because the reality it is, is that for a lot of people in the younger generation, the question about queer acceptance is not just a question about queer acceptance. It's a question about a larger attitude towards Torah, Yiddishkeit, and modernity. Um, I can I repeatedly encounter young people for whom the test case of whether the Torah resonates with their own innate value system 
is Halakha's attitude towards the queer community? So the queer question no longer is a queer question. Um, I like to share with people an instance of a friend of mine. A friend of mine was invited to speak in a very prominent modern Orthodox school. I'm sure if you took 10 seconds, you will say, oh, that one it must be, but I'm not gonna share the name. And he was invited to speak at that school, it's a high school, about the LGBTQ issue. He gets up and he says to the kids, before I start, I wanna ask you, if a friend of yours invites you to their gay wedding, how many of you participated in the wedding? You wanna take a guess how many hands went up, went up, Ripsmoy? I, I would guess Rove. Wrong. 100%. But that's not the Kiddush, my friend said. The Kiddush was, it didn't take them a second to think, oh, well, let me think. It was instinctual. It was obvious to them. If their friend, if their relative gets married, doesn't matter. So it's a, you know, it's a heterosexual marriage or it's a homosexual marriage, they're going to go. Right. And then have tremendous implications of where they are religiously. And if we are not going to step in, and again, not compromise halakha, not give up on halakha, but as moderns, we always know that it bears, halakha bears revisiting. Take a look again. See, is there room within the conference of observance to make um, orthodoxy more welcoming and more um, accepting? And like I said, if we don't do that, uh, the consequences, I'm afraid, is going to be quite significant. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that's, that's stated very well. And in addition to the non-queer population, um, I would say, and I know you'll agree from your powerful Facebook posts, which have, have you've shed tears over this, the number of ex-Haredi folks who have committed suicide, the number of LGBTQ uh, Orthodox folks who have committed suicide. We know that at, at least at the lowest bar, although it's in another sense the highest bar, pikuach nefesh, the power of just all the data shows, the power of one mentor or rabbi to embrace or push away someone on the most basic level is a life, is a life or death issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I will say that, you know, um, given my own, you know, background and my own experience, having grown up in a credit community and um, still having, you know, relationships with the community, um, it, I was quite, I mean, as you mentioned, I've written on Facebook on this issue. This is an issue that deeply uh, matters to me and is deeply important to me. And um, there have been quite a few people within the community reached out and said, and said to me exactly what I've been saying um, throughout this interview. I don't even want help in stopping to be Orthodox. I just want to know that I can be who I am and still continue to be Orthodox. And interestingly enough, quite often they not only said they want to be Orthodox, they said, is it possible to be queer and Haredi? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Ravi Saskarkas, thank you so much for taking this time. Friends, continue to, uh, to follow his, uh, his Facebook page. He puts on really insightful Torah and, um, and his other writings out there. Yashikoa. Thank you very much for having me, Rupshmali. Culture of keep up your holy work. You're doing a vote as a Kodesh. Amen. Amen.